Section 7. Part 2, Chapter 2 of An Essay on the Art of Ingeniously Tormenting by Jane Collier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 To the Wife. The common disposition with which a married couple generally come together, except for mere lucrative motives, is this. The man, for some qualification, either personal or mental, which he sees, or dreams he sees, in some woman, fixes his affections on that woman. Then, instead of endeavouring to fix her affections on himself, he directs all her thoughts and her enjoyment on settlements, equipage, fine clothes, and every other gratification of vanity within his power and fortune to give her. He pays so thorough an adoration and submission to her in all respects, that he soon perfects a work, perhaps, before, half finished to his hands, namely, the making her completely and immovably in love with herself. This puts her, for the present, into such good spirits and good humour that the poor man, from the pleasure he finds in her company, believes her to be in love with him. This thought, joined to his first inclination to her person, creates in him a pretty strong affection towards her, and gives her that power over him which I would willingly assist her in exerting. This affection, when he becomes her husband, generally shows itself in real kindness. But as soon as all the joy arising from the courtship is gone, the wife generally grows uneasy. Her husband, being no longer her lover, grows disgustful to her, and, if she be a woman of violent passions, she turns fractious and sour, and a breach soon ensues. The husband may bluster and rave and talk of his authority and power as much as he pleases, but it is very easy to grow into such a perfect disregard of such storms that, by wrapping oneself up in a proper degree of contempt, they will blow as vainly over our heads as the wind over our houses. Besides, if there are not emoluments enough in the husband's house to make it worth while to bear the ill humours raised by our own frowardness, separation is the word to which, if a husband will not consent, a cause of cruelty against him in Doctors' Commons will soon bring him to. For, as I have heard, the husband there, by paying the expenses of both sides, will be obliged in a manner to supply his wife with the means of carrying her own point, and will be glad, therefore, to make any conditions with her. But a woman of prudence will know when she is well, will take no such precipitate steps, but will rejoice in the discovery of her husband's great affection towards her, as a means for pursuing the course of teasing and tormenting which I here recommend. Oh, the joy it is to have a good servant, cried Sophronia, who had not goodness of heart enough to be kind to any human creature, and whose joy must therefore arise from having a proper subject to torment. But with what ecstasy, then, might the artful Livia cry out, Oh, the joy it is to have a good husband! If you bring a large fortune to your husband, custom and example will justify you in being as insolent as you please. Solomon himself bears testimony to the intolerable yoke a man takes upon his neck, who submits to be supported by his wife. But my advice is that if you bring no fortune to your husband, you should be as insolent as if you had increased his store by thousands. This, I own, is a bold stroke, but does not want its precedence. If a man marries you without a fortune, and raises you, perhaps, many degrees from the state to which he was born, 
Is it not for his honour that you should show him that your spirit can rise with your fortune? In what can a woman show her spirit more than in insolence and opposition? For are ye not taught from your cradles that submission and acquiescence is meanness and unbecoming of a woman of spirit? Not but you may insult your husband frequently with the words duty and obedience, provided you never are mean enough to bring them into your practice. If the fortune, as before observed, be entirely on your husband's side, you may also be pretty sure of the strength of his affection towards you, as that alone could determine his choice, and therefore you have the firmest foundation to work upon. There is, besides, another deep malignant pleasure that must arise in the breast of every woman that makes a vexatious and tormenting wife to a man who has generously lifted her from distress and obscurity into affluence and splendour. I mean the hope that her example will deter many a man from conferring the like obligation. This, I confess, may save some men from being plagued with a termagant, but I rather believe that it will prevent many a good girl's happiness, as also the happiness of every generous man, who is thus scared from attempting the likeliest method, if there be such a thing as gratitude in a female breast, for conjugal felicity. If your husband is not a man of independent fortune, but is in any trade or profession, if also he should have met with misfortunes and rubs enough to have kept him back from the high road to riches, be sure to show such a despondency towards every scheme or step he takes for the advancement of his fortune, as will sink and depress his spirits, and render him fearful of the event of almost every undertaking. Add also your earnest advice against every proposal he makes. By this means, you will hang such a weight on him that he will have no enjoyment of his life. Should his schemes and endeavours succeed, you may enjoy the fruits of his industry and find other ways enough to plague him, but should they fail, let him not want the additional load of your reproaches for not having followed your advice, and you may lament as loudly as you please for your poor self and your poor children. Say boldly to him, See, barbarous man, how, by your misconduct, you have ruined my children. For you must seem absolutely to forget that your husband has any share in your mutual offspring, although you see him pierced with the most poignant affliction by his fears for their future welfare, and in this custom will countenance you enough to take off all fear of censure from the world for such a practice. If you marry a widower with children, I would rather advise you to consider those children as a means put into your hands to plague your husband than as new subjects for you to torment. If you yourself are a widow, the well-known path lies before you, of insulting, plaguing, and tormenting your second husband by praises of your first. And this practice is so well established that we have an old law which advises no man to marry a widow unless her first husband was hanged. A woman, by her profligate behaviour, may bring infamy on herself and her husband. By her extravagance, she may attempt to ruin him, or, by a violent termagancy of temper, she may never suffer him to have a moment's peace or quiet in his house. But these enormities, it is presumed, will render her detestable in the eyes of the world, and may put her husband on some measures of redress. Her extravagance, with some difficulty, may be restrained. For her scandalous intrigues, a divorce from her may be obtained. And if a man finds perpetual storms and ill-humour at home, he is at liberty to fly from so hateful a place. Such violent measures, therefore, as I have the highest regard to the reputation of my pupils, I absolutely forbid. It is your delicate strokes I must recommend, 
and those must come from pretended fondness. You may complain of every hour your husband spends from you with any of his friends, as robbing you of his dear company. You may frequently repeat the following fond speech, mentioned in The Spectator. You are all the world to me, and why should not I be all the world to you? Be sure not to like or approve of any of your husband's friends, and, when in company with them, say so many half-rude things as will keep him in a continual fright for you, and will make him hasten them away as soon after dinner as possible, to prevent your exposing yourself, and, perhaps, exposing him to a quarrel, in order to support your ill manners. As soon as your husband returns home, you may fall on his friends for taking him away from you, and abuse them with all the virulence you are mistress of. But should you have indulged yourself in railing at them, and have said so many bitter things against them, as to have grated your husband's soul, and to have raised in him a little degree of anger, you have nothing to do but to own yourself a weak, silly, fond woman, apt, you may confess, to take prejudices, nay, aversions, to those who would endeavour to share with you the least portion of your husband's affections. Then, bursting into tears, you may add that nothing but the most hard-hearted wretch in the world could be angry with his poor wife for hating anybody out of love to him, but you did, and would hate and detest them all, as long as you lived. On this your husband will be forced to sue for reconcilement, which you must by no means grant, till you have brought him to acknowledge that the highest mark of affection you can show towards him is to hate and abhor all those whom he esteems and loves. This behaviour, even towards his men friends, will pass for love. But as to all his female acquaintance, you need not fear showing the highest degree of jealousy towards every woman he speaks to. Nay, you may, to show your extravagant fondness for him, watch his very eyes in company, and fail not to upbraid him with unkindness for looking at any woman besides yourself. Let a smart curtain lecture also be the certain consequence of his having spoke with the least degree of praise or approbation of any woman whatsoever. These practices must be where you know they will tease, and where, also, you have not any real cause for jealousy. But should you have reason to think that your husband is false to you, it is a very nice point. I have heard of wives who, by a seeming blindness to their husband's inconstancy, and by a double portion of cheerfulness and good humour, have recalled their wandering affections. The husband also, by this amiable behaviour in his wife, like a man near shipwrecked in the stormy seas, has been so enamoured of his native home as never more to quit so happy an asylum as the kind bosom of such a wife. This method, it is true, recalls the husband, if he is worth recalling, but it makes him blessed, and is, therefore, unfit for the practice of my pupils. The man, in our case, likewise, if possible, must be recalled, and got into trammels, for which reason, open rage and resentment against him for his inconstancy must be suppressed, as it might drive him from the company of his cross-wife to the arms of his kind mistress. However, I think you may venture to throw forth as much rage and venom as you please against the hated strumpet who has deprived you of your lawful property. You may excuse your husband by inveighing against him the cunning arts of bad women, who make it their business to draw aside easy-tempered, unwary men. You may declare your fondness so great for dear Billy that you can forgive him anything, although you are determined, if possible, to stab or poison the base wanton harlot who seduced him from your lawful bed. Casting your fond arms about his neck, 
you may utter such a mixture of feigned love and real reproaches as will entangle him too strongly to make him break from you, and yet will make him wish himself surrounded with a swarm of hornets, rather than encircled with such tormenting endearments. If your husband has sisters, and is fond of them, study every art of behaviour towards them that will plague and vex him. Be sometimes over-civil and formal to them, and at other times perfectly rude, insolent and ill-bred, but never leave till you have, by some means or other, entirely alienated your husband's affections from them. Then change your views, and consider them as new subjects of your own power. Practice every art of teasing and tormenting towards them, and your husband also, if he is under proper management and you have a due influence over him, will join with you in the sport, and unless they, by some means of independence, escape your power, you cannot well have better game. When a man has married a real gentle-spirited, good woman, I have sometimes seen the husband's sisters attempting this sort of pastime with her, but generally with very ill success, unless the husband be of so mighty uncommon a temper as to suffer any woman, who is not his bedfellow, to have the least ascendancy over him. But these cases are so very rare that I cannot help advising my pupils, whose brothers are married, not to show their teeth, where they are so little likely to bite, but rather to wait till they themselves can be so happy as to get a man on their side who will support them in all their tricks and insolence. Besides nourishing in your mind an inveterate hatred against all your husband's relations and acquaintance, you may show the highest dislike to every place he was fond of before he married. But express the highest joy and raptures on the very mention of any place that you used to live in yourself before you was married and be as lavish as possible of your praises of a single life. You may also, if your husband be not of a very jealous temper, hoard up a parcel of favourite trinkets, as rings, snuff-boxes, and so on, which were given you before marriage, and let it appear, from your immoderate fondness for these baubles, that the givers of them are still nearest to your heart. Carefully study your husband's temper, and find out what he likes, in order never to do one anything that will please him. If he expresses his approbation of the domestic qualities of a wife, such as family economy and that old-fashioned female employment the needle, neglect your family as much as ever his temper will bear, and always have your white gloves on your hands. Tell him that every woman of spirit ought to hate and despise a man who could insist on his wife being a family drudge, and declare that you will not submit to be a cook and a sempstress to any man. But if he loves company and cheerful parties of pleasure, and would willingly have you always with him, knows him with your great love of needlework and housewifery. Or, should he be a man of genius, and should employ his leisure hours in writing, be sure to show a tasteless indifference to everything he shows you of his own. The same indifference, also, may you put on if he should be a man who loves reading, and is of so communicative a disposition as to take delight in reading to you any of our best and most entertaining authors. If, for instance, he desires you to hear one of Shakespeare's plays, you may give him perpetual interruptions, by sometimes going out of the room, sometimes ringing the bell to give orders for what cannot be wanted till the next day, at other times taking notice, if your children are in the room, that Molly's cap is awry, or that Jackie looks pale, and then begin questioning the child, whether he has done anything to make himself sick. If you have needlework in your hands, you may be so busy in cutting it out and measuring one part with another, that it will plainly appear to your husband that you mind not one word he reads. If all this teases him enough to make him call on you for your attention, you may say that 
indeed you have other things to mind besides poetry. And, if he was uneasy at your taking care of your family and children, and mending his shirts, you wished he had a learned wife, and then he would soon see himself in a jail, and his family in rags. Fail not to be as eloquent as possible on this subject, for I could bring you numberless precedents of silly and illiterate wives, who have half-talked their husbands to death in exclaiming against the loquacity of all women, who have any share of understanding or knowledge. If your husband should be a musical man, you will have many opportunities of teasing and plaguing him. Frequent interruptions and noises, by yourself or children, may be played off upon him, and you must take such an aversion to the sound of all musical instruments, and to all the tribe of fiddlers, as you may call them, that your husband, wearied out by your clamour, may, possibly, give up his favourite amusement. But should you not have power enough over him to carry your point in that manner, you have nothing for it but the old trick of indifference, and sullen dislike, both to his own performance in music, and to any collection of hands by which he might hope to give you some entertainment. Be out of humour when your husband brings company home. Be angry if he goes abroad without you, and troublesome if he takes you with him. If your husband be a real domestic man, if he takes delight in his own family and the company of his wife and children, then be sure never to be easy in your own house. But let visiting, plays, operas, voxel, renala, and so on, be your chief delight. The least restraint from any of these gives you a fair opportunity for pouts or wrangling, and you will also have the whole sex on your side, against the barbarous man who should deny his poor wife the free enjoyment of such innocent amusements. If your husband should be willing either to stay at home, to go abroad, or to lead any kind of life that would be most agreeable to you, never let him find out what would be most agreeable to you. This may be done either by a childish pettishness and wayward ill-humour with everything he proposes, or by a mock compliance. For when he says, Would you like, my dear, to do so or so? You may answer, Let it be just what you like, Mr. Blank for you know I never dispute your will. If your husband, on observing you particularly fond of something at a friend's table, should desire you to get it for yourself at home, you may say that you are so little selfish that you cannot bear to provide anything for your own eating. And this you may boldly declare, although it should be your common practice to provide some delicacy for yourself every day. It is most likely that your husband will let this pass, but if he should not, you may, on detection, fly to tears, and complaints of his cruelty and barbarity, in upbraiding you with so small an indulgence as that of a chicken, or a tart sometimes, for your own eating, when he knows that your weak stomach will not give you leave to make the horse-like meals that he does. If you manage this scene rightly, and sufficiently reiterate in your husband's ears the words cruel, unkind, barbarous, and so on, he will, it is most likely, forget the true occasion of all this uproar, and will begin to think he had been a little hard upon you, in taking notice of a daily indulgence, which he himself had not only allowed, but requested you to accept. He will ask your pardon, and confess himself in fault, doubling his diligence for the future, in providing all sorts of rarities, to gratify your palate. Be it observed, that this knack of turning the tables, and forcing the offended person to pardon of the first aggressor, is one of the most ingenious strokes of our art, and may be practised in every connection, where the power is founded in love. But to return. Should your husband, instead of desiring you to please yourself, provide something for you without your knowledge, as many kind husbands have done, in order to give you a small, unexpected pleasure, then be sure not to touch a mouthful of it, 
and, if your circumstances are but low, you may upbraid him with his extravagance for buying what he can so little afford. This cannot easily be practised in high life, where all sorts of elegancies and rarities are every day provided. But still, if you have a fond husband, you may, in the midst of the highest plenty, give him no small uneasiness, even in this article of eating, by never letting him see you swallow half enough to keep body and soul together. But do not mistake me in this point, and really starve yourself to vex your husband, for, if you have a trusty Abigail, she will daily bring you up into your own dressing room a boiled chicken, a roasted sweetbread, or any other thing you like. And there are ways enough from your own private purse to bribe her to secrecy. When your husband is absent, insist so strongly on a letter from him every post that he shall often be put to the highest inconvenience to write, or will suffer great uneasiness from the thought of your being disappointed. The very first time you receive not the expected letter, make no allowances for the carelessness of servants who carry letters to the post-house, or for twenty trifling incidents that may be the cause of your disappointment, but say that you are sure some dreadful accident has happened. Then immediately hire a man and horse, and send him, if it be two hundred miles, to inquire after your dear husband's health, or you may get a post-chaise and go yourself. But should your worldly circumstances be such, as not to be in the least hurt by this expensive messenger, or should your husband be so situated that your coming to him would be neither very perplexing or inconvenient, then hire no such messenger. Take no such journey, but stay and enjoy yourself in the place you are in. Only fail not to write to him such a letter as will heartily vex him, and keep him upon the fret with the thoughts of your uneasiness, whilst you are very cheerful and merry, till a post or two will clear up the matter to him, and he, poor man, is at last satisfied that you are no longer miserable with your fears for his health and safety. This practice of letter-writing, if properly managed, is one of the most fruitful branches of our trade, but seems too well known to need more than this short hint upon that subject. When your husband is from home, but not far distant, although you should be in ever so good health, in ever so high spirits, and should be enjoying yourself in his absence with a set of your own friends and acquaintance, yet the very instant he appears, throw a languidness into your countenance. Let your voice grow small, complain of every ailment incident to the human body, and appear so perfectly dejected and low-spirited that your fond husband will be under the utmost anxiety about you. Instead of finding his own house the seat of joy and gladness, and meeting with a cheerful companion there to heighten his pleasures and alleviate his cares, he will find his own spirits depressed. He will be obliged to stifle every cheerful incident he might have collected for your amusement. He must either give himself up to melancholy and discomfort at home, for your friends, if he stayed, would, on seeing the part you intended to act, soon troop off, or he must seek relief by flight and associating with his companions abroad. Should the latter be his choice, then the day is your own. You may, the moment his back is turned, resume your spirits, your good humour, your gaiety, and make merry with your friends. You need not blush for the appearance this will make to them, for if your visitors are married females, it is ten to one, but they have, some of them, often practised the same themselves. Nor need you be apprehensive of others foretelling tales upon you, even although they should detest your odious pranks. For, out of the many hundred, I will not say thousand, husbands that have been served by this trick, I ask if one single one 
was ever yet informed of this kind of pleasant behaviour in his wife. End of section 7